And we're on. Welcome back to Nobody Cares About Dad and our virtual social. This week as ever, joined by my co-host, AD. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Good. Good to be back. <laughs> good to be back in the UK, of course. And joined all the way from the United States. So good morning, Mike. Mike Messier, how are you? I'm good. I'm Mike Messier. Glad to be here, everybody. Thank you. No, appreciate you coming on. Um, Mike, like I said just a second ago, actually, uh, a, com- a number of jobs that you do. So producer, screenwriter, director, TV host, <laughs> an actor. An acting coach, too. And an acting coach. <laughs> How do you have any time to sit still? Do you wear a watch? <laughs> I don't wear a watch. You know, I've, I've never liked the feel of a watch, to be honest with you. Um, I like I like the idea of watches. I like the idea of men's jewelry, rings. I'll wear a ring sometimes. But a, a watch, maybe because I'm left-handed, has always been kind of tough for me to uh, wear. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm left-handed. But it's, uh, yeah, wearing the watch on the opposite hand can be quite awkward we're not allowed to play polo either from what i understand i don't move in those circles so uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah so look mike came across your um profile on matchmaker fm which when i told my wife about she um pulled a funny face and i think she was suggesting i was on some sort of dating site but i reassured her that that wasn't the case and it is a place for podcasters and guests to to meet and match and yeah look we we were looking for 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 colorful characters to come on and talk about their life experiences our page is specifically designed and targeted towards men and dads and you know we talk about self-improvement and men's mental health struggles and those sort of things so yeah look really really pleased that you agreed to come on and give us some time uh, this morning for you, afternoon for us, and um, obviously I'd love to hear a couple, about a couple of your projects. I know you've got a, a book that you've just written, um, which I, I will put in the description yes. um, of where people can find it and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, you it really interested to talk about the project that we uh, were just talking about, which was um, if Donald Trump can get off so if Donald Trump can get elected, I can get off my meds. I thought was a really w- witty and interesting title and r- very relevant, actually, for what our guys listen to and talk about. Yeah, thanks. You know, that, that project, I started filming on December 30th, 2016. And, um, you know, th- it was really just an experiment. And it was, <clears throat> you know, an experiment of kind of high stakes because I had been taking medications for mental health issues for many, many years. And uh, there was a, a month, December of 2016, where I had lost the meds early in the month. And uh, I contacted you know, my pharmacy and they were nice enough to contact my doctor and give me a replacement. And there was no fee, but I think at the time they said, hey, you know, uh, we can give you this one replacement, but that's it. And then a few weeks later, I lost the meds again. And this time, kind of taking that as a cue to myself, maybe on a spiritual level, that maybe it's time I I try to get off these meds. Because I never signed up as a patient or as a person to be on these meds for the rest of my life. Uh, There's some type of, there's side effects for everything, pretty much. Yeah. And there's also a... um, self-consciousness or a self-esteem issue that comes with taking certain medications, not all, but some. And for each person, it's different. 
And for me, uh, the situation at the end of the year, I didn't have a whole lot of big plans or big responsibilities at the moment. So I kind of knew that, okay, it's going to be tough to justify asking for another set of prescriptions, having just, you know, asked for them two weeks earlier. And if ever there was a time to try and get off these meds, maybe it's right now because it's the end of the year. There's not a lot of responsibility. And let me see what happens. So I, I, I basically went cold turkey off the meds and I started videotaping that situation. It's just selfie, you know, Android 7 a phone, I believe I had at the time. And let's see what happens. And I'll videotape it. And maybe it'll be interesting. And, you know, the, the first couple of days were pretty rough. And I think that's if you watch that first, you know, 25 or 26 minute pilot, um, if Donald Trump can get elected president, I can get off my medications. You can see that I'm pretty riled up. I'm, I'm pretty, you know, antagonistic about things. I'm, I'm pretty hyper. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of going through a process of anger and justification of, of why was I on these things in the first place? You know, is this stuff holding me back? And and a lot of stuff is coming out of me. And it's a tough piece for me to watch. And in fact, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of more years worth of material there, to be honest with you, that I haven't gone through and edited because it's pretty tough to watch. Um, but the point of it is, and the, the title, I think, you know, kind of rings true to the absurdity of it all. If this, you know, celebrity apprentice, um, TV show producer, you know, second or third generation millionaire, billionaire Donald Trump can kind of get his way into the White House with no gubernatorial experience, no Senate experience, not a mayor of a city, had never been elected for a elected, you know, official capacity before. If he can become our president in the United States, why can't a guy who has a reasonable head on his shoulders get off these medications despite the fact that his uh, doctors, therapists, and, you know, quote the system, quote, would prefer him to stay on, meaning, meaning me. And there's a bigger conversation there about uh, a conversation our country and probably the world is not quite ready for, which is, does everyone that's being prescribed these medications really need to be on them? Um, I'm not going to draw a sweeping paintbrush on everybody. These meds are probably good for some people, but you know, 500 years ago, leeches were good for some people. Yeah. So <laughs> we don't really know all the answers. And I think one thing that I have against um, the psychology world, I guess, is a bit of an arrogance there, you know, feeling that they know their best with their, you know, their books and their, their papers and their prescriptions. But here's a little catchphrase I have for you guys. You, there's no money in the cure. There's only money in the disease. Yeah. So without patience as a provider of money, you, you're not going to need as many hospitals, psychiatrists, psychologists, and therapists. Now, I, I've got nothing against any particular therapist, doctor, or psychologist, but my own experiences have been mixed. And the greatest survival tool I've had has been myself. And it's all too easy, I think. We have we have a similar problem here in the UK, and I think it's it's all too easy for the doctors to just put a plaster with medication over the problem with actually instead of actually dealing with actually what is causing this problem and how can we improve the life of these people without actually having to just put a plaster on hoping that the medication fixes the problem long term, which it's 
obviously never going to do. No, I say it's, I've done it before. You've you phoned the doctor here. You finally get through. You get an appointment, but it's a video. Uh, it's a phone call. They're asking you to explain what's wrong, how you're feeling, all of this, and then they just prescribe you stuff over the phone. Mm. You're thinking, okay, I could be, I could be sat at home, like sat there just kicking back, happy as like anything, but putting on a show because I want something. Yeah. And then they just go, yeah, here's your prescription. We'll send it through. And you're thinking, okay. Like they've, they've given me some powerful like painkillers and stuff before. And I'm thinking, that's just a phone call. That is right. literally just a phone call. So you're right. You you need that. <clears throat> Sometimes you need that mental state yourself to go, hang on. This is this is this can't happen. This isn't good. And then it's then it's your own self, isn't it? You're testing yourself then to go, okay, no one else is gonna get me off of this or stop yeah. me making these phone calls. So it's where you come on to, you know, some of your other stuff, your your self-improvement and Mentally, how can I stop this? That's what we we talk about like quite often, don't we, Marco? It comes up. What have you done? Not what have you listened to? What have you watched? What has other people told you? <clears throat> Are you receptive to to take that on and go? Okay, I'll do it. And it's interesting, Mike, that you you videoed your sort of you know yeah. your, your journey from that. Like that's that's valuable in so many ways, and probably to so many people. Because you don't know what happens, do you? You don't know what happens when you come off of long-term meds. No, you don't. And it's <laughs> especially, um, thank you for saying that, but especially without, um, the, I guess I would say the backup or the support of the therapist or the doctor I was seeing at the time, you know, they were opposed to it. And they, they probably had good reasons to be opposed to that. You know, they're, they're not looking to have a patient on their watch or on, on their agenda, on, on their curriculum of patients who who loses loses their stability so i can understand that but what i experienced was kind of like okay instead of some support or some you know recognition that hey this might be a good idea uh for for me to try to get off these meds there was just a lot of um negativity and a lot of uh you know uh foreshadowing of 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 but here i am four and a half years later and i'm okay so um, I think that's the only thing you can do with the, with those type of organizations or people, you know, and people in power is the only thing you can do is prove them wrong. And I, I guess one thing I would say, guys, is, you know, before we go any further, just 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 as a preface, because I know how people think sometimes if someone's listening to this show and they're on meds themselves, I'm not advocating that anyone do what I did, which is go cold turkey. I'm not telling anyone to take your bottle of medications, whatever it is, and throw it in the toilet. Um, <laughs> but I would I would raise the conversation that at least think about what's going on there. And but I'm I'm not calling for for mass protests or mass throwing away of medication. But I think what has to be thought of, I I do think this, the individual has to take more responsibility for themselves. And each individual case has to be thought of and addressed as an individual case rather than a, well, this is what most people are like, so, so you should follow this most people thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. It has a not like that can have that effect of like, oh, well, that didn't happen to you, so why has it happened to me? Like, right. sudden, and then you start maybe going, oh, I need to go back on them. I'm not yeah. coping. But like I said, everyone's different. Well, we, t we talk about this in being a dad and, you know, people saying we're trying to compare kids, right? You, 
every kid is so different. Uh, so, you know, one parent will say, oh, we did this and this one will go, well, we did that. And you can sometimes find yourself thinking, well, this isn't working for me. What am I doing wrong? You're probably doing nothing wrong. It's just that your kid is different to theirs. And it's the same with with everybody's own mental health and how you deal and how you get off any medication that you take. Everybody is uniquely different. And it's about recognizing that. And rather than just conforming and doing whatever everybody else is doing, you need to understand what works for you and what's going to help you. Well, here, here's the thing. And to your point, when you talk about, you see, I'm not a, I'm not a father myself, but I am a, a, I was raised in a family where there was a history of mental illness. And so when I experienced some difficulty in life, which was basically because there was uh, some kids in my high school that were doing an LSD, uh, you know, acid trade, not trade, but they were in business. <laughs> they were in business so much that they made the Washington Post newspaper for a giant LSD scam, uh, you know, not scam, but, but business, you know, whatever you call it. And apparently these kids, uh, which weren't friends of mine, they laced the school lunch food. And what seems to have happened for me was I ingested some of that unknowingly that some of this LSD and who knows how much of it was in the school lunch or how much I had or who knows, but I ingested some of this stuff and I had like a really bad acid trip without even knowing that I had this stuff in my system. And that was kind of the catalyst incident, which sent me down a path of mental health issues. And once that was started, what was so easy for the doctors at the time when I was, you know, 17 years old, was to say, well, of course you're having these mental health issues. This runs in your family. You know, your your mother had these mental health issues. So of of course you're just living up to your legacy. You're living up to your your family. Of course, we're expecting this of you, Mike. Yeah. Well, my my sibling didn't have these problems, uh, and and she grew up with the same stress in the same family that I did with divorce and conflict and volatility. So why was it coming upon me? What was odd, and I, I still think this is a failure of all that were involved, which was why wasn't the fact that this LSD was in my system against my will, why wasn't that examined? Why wasn't the, how do we get this LSD out of this guy's system? Do we do we have him drink three gallons of water a day or, or, or two gallons of water a day until he gets a good portion of it out. What about yoga? You know, if he stretches his back, apparently LSD can stick into your spinal column somehow. So what if, what if he does yoga and some of this stuff works itself out uh, quicker than, than, than longer? You see what I'm saying? So the actual problem that oddly enough was known of uh, because, and I have evidence of that because uh they use that situation as justification to allow me to graduate high school without taking my final exams, which is unusual. <laughs> the school took some uh, responsibility and said, well, we better let this guy out of high school because he was probably poisoned on our watch. Well, how come that no. mindset didn't carry over to let's get this guy some help for this poisoning rather than just assign him this mental illness of, of bipolar and send him down a narrative and a trajectory for years and years of you need help for being bipolar. So that was my situation. And I don't know if 
how unique or how common that is. I have seen some YouTube videos of, of people that are getting off meds or have gotten off meds, and it's tough because once you kind of buy into the mindset that you should be on it, it's hard to get off of them. Yeah. say it becomes normal. It becomes part of your <clears> – we're, we're, we're creatures of habits, aren't we? We're, we are all about routine and from a young age, from kids all the way up, even adults, you have a routine. And if that is part of your routine, in the morning you take – this pill, that pill, this red one, the yellow one, mix it with that. That is normal to you. So when you do sort of move yourself from that situation, like you said, it's how do you break that mold? But going back to that, it, it just sums up the whole, you know, people get tarred with the same brush. That's what right. we, we call it over here. You know, it's, it's that problem. Oh, it runs in your family. Like, so I could take a ticket, quickly sign it off. There you go. Like, that's it. You, you're diagnosed and you're thinking – well, it must be right. You're a medical professional. I've got to trust you. So, yeah. okay, I will take that advice and I will have 17 pills a day for the rest of my life. And it's, again, back to your point. And, you know, I praise you massively for that that willpower of going, no, actually, no, this is not. This is not good enough. You can't sustain it. But you, only you can change it. And you've done. You've completely bucked that. So hats off to you. Thanks. Thank you. My Mike, you mentioned um, obviously medical professionals at the point in 2016 were saying, "Don't go cold turkey." Did did you speak to any friends and family? What 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 did they say? What did, what advice was given to you from people that knew you? Well, you know, both of my family, or should I say, I didn't speak to family. I spoke to one or two selected friends. I think I spoke to my friend Tommy, uh, and I think I spoke to my friend Joe about it. And I think that I wanted to make them aware of it because those were the two guys that I talked to on a daily basis, pretty much. And uh, they were the guys that kind of knew the real me. You know, one thing I would probably say that's no offense to my family, but I don't know if they really know who the hell I am. You know what I mean? And I think that that family dynamic uh, was never particularly great for me. And sometimes I see people who have families where, you know, uh, they get, you know, you know, I see people that have families that they're very close to or they're, you know, and, and I just can't relate to that um, because I did have a family that they were good people, but I'm not going to lie to you or, or whatever, because I think one thing about our American society and maybe even more so where you, where you gentlemen are is that everyone puts this big emphasis on family. Well, there's a whole lot of people out there that don't feel particularly close to their family. So when we have these, you know, Christmas cards or we have these, Fourth uh, of July banquets, or you know, for us over here. But yeah. when we have these celebrations that are always so family oriented, there are many people that even if they do have somewhere to go, they don't particularly feel like that's what they want to be doing. Yeah, and I, I would probably say I'm one of those people. So uh, that being said, you asked about family or friends. Uh, the, the couple of friends that I confided in, I think Tommy and Joe, and I think Joe has since Joe has since passed away. They were pretty encouraging. And uh, pretty intrigued. And the, the family, I just never told them about it. Okay. Yeah, it's very, so, go on. Sorry, go on, AD. I was going to say, it's very much, like you said, the whole emphasis on family. And I think, so from, from my personal, from what I see is, like, you know, social media, everything plays up to this happy family. This is how family life should be. You know, mum, dad sitting in the garden, 
laughing at their children playing. Like th that's not the, that is so far from the the, the truth. Um, I mean, if there are families like that, then well done, like for completely. But what lockdown has shown is you spend time. So you, if you're in a family, you spend time in them fa that family because you're forced to at the moment because of lockdown. And what we see in now is a lot of people are realizing, actually, I'm nothing like my family. I don't like them. <laughs> so there's this whole thing that we're about to come out of certain restrictions over here. And everyone I spoke to that live at home still with their mum and dad and things like that, they are itching to get out the door. There's none of this family time anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, I'm gone. Because they yeah. just they've had enough. And Again, like I said, social media, we spoke about it before on previous podcasts. It plays so much now, so much part of everyone's life in society. Because no matter who you are, some part of social media will distract you and you start you start focusing on it. And then you start to tend to copy certain things or think, oh, I wonder how that would look. Let me take a picture. Or I'll add a filter. Oh, look, all of a sudden I look incredible. That's not life. I had to put the, the brakes on myself, I think two days ago, I think Monday of this week, I got emails that I had won three film awards in one morning. And the first thing was, oh my goodness, I have to go to Facebook and Twitter and share this great news. And then I started making some posts. I'm like, man, I'm getting sick of myself. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations on the awards. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. And I, I know that most people would be very congratulatory, but in my own filter, I'm, I'm playing two roles. I'm playing the Mike Messier self-promoter, and then I'm playing the hypothetical guy watching Mike Messier. Like, if I wasn't me, what would I think of myself? I'd say, man, this guy needs to go away. So <laughs> I listen to that guy. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's right. We, like you say, Eddie, we, you, social media, you, 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 you pull back the curtains on these supposed happy families, and all isn't what it seems. I mean, if you look at this last year, there's been a record number of divorces, a record number of separations. Um, there's been a real issue here. I don't know what it's like over there, but I imagine it's the same. We're, we're very similar people with domestic violence on the increase, you know, by forcing these, because before, you know, you used to have your family, your wife, your kids, and you could come and you can go and do your own thing. But this last year has forced people to be together for a long, long time, and like you said, AD, a lot of a lot of people have realised actually we're nothing alike. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. going through my birth records, going, nah, that not, they're not related to me, not a chance. <laughs> well, I, I think that's one thing, guys. You know, like I I moved to I'm in the I'm in the state of Florida right now. I moved here, um, you know, a year and a half ago, so about six months before COVID, and I. A lot of people were shocked that I left the state of Rhode Island, which is the smallest state in the country, the U.S., and um, they were kind of shocked that I had left there after being there for so long. But my rebuttal to that was I never wanted to be here in the first place. You know, like mm -hmm. the winter in Rhode Island is so long. It's six or seven months long. It's ridiculous. And mm -hmm. um, I had some really good friends there. But was any aspect of my life so good that I couldn't leave it? And the answer was no. So I got here to Florida, you know, more, I mean, I had help, I had help from like three people help me move, but I drove to Florida with a car full of stuff and no address to go to. I just said, well, I'll figure something out. I'll get a place to live when I get there. And so that type of thing that I did 
in 2019, had I been on the medications, had I had the mindset of uh, codependence on the medications, I don't think I would have accomplished that. I think there would have been too much fear of, okay, well, how are you going to get your meds once you get down there and blah, blah, blah. And I guess getting back to the point of this mental health aspect of our conversation, um, what people see, our society, at least the USA, we're just getting to the point where we can even accept people having to take medications. Like that, that's the level that we're at now, which is people that have to take either lithium, lamictal, Ativan, Abilify, uh, Wellbutrin, whatever it is. We're just at a point where those people are not feeling isolated or demonized or you're a bad person or, or whatever. And we're just getting to the point where just taking the meds is not necessarily cause for suspicion or a punchline. And I'm at the level of, I've taken the meds, now maybe I don't need the meds. And mm -hmm. maybe I never did. So my story, to me, it's almost a dangerous story to tell because it gives kind of that point of view that these meds are useless or people with meds have a crutch or whatever. Mm -hmm. It gives that a little fuel for the fire, which I'm not trying to do. So that's why I kind of go into this conversation with a duality, which is, this is my personal story. I don't know if I ever needed those meds. I did take them for a long time. I had trouble when I was on the meds. I don't know if that if it's going to be the same thing for everybody else, but I would say once again, I think there is a, a quick, uh, quick finger to prescribe. Yeah, over here. There's and as you told the story of make a phone call and get on something, uh, and 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 to me. You know, were these meds available 500 years ago when people were in the fields plowing their own hay or whatever? Uh, <laughs> probably not. So if you look at the, the analysis, which I have looked into, I don't have these numbers memorized, but since like the 1960s or 70s, these um, diagnosis of mental illness have skyrocketed. Yeah. So why are these, why all of a sudden we have all these diagnoses of mental illness when 50 or 100 years ago we didn't have that is it the stress of our society is uh, people are people changing or is it perhaps because there's money to be made i don't I have all the answers i think it's a mixture of, of yes. probably all of that to be honest i think there's, there's elements to to each of it it's um it's very much so over here i think i read not so long ago about the the, the next biggest crisis that is hitting the NHS at the moment over here, the National Health Service, is mental health. Yeah. Because of because of lockdown, because of the anxiety, and that's a quick thing and a quick word to throw around. Like, oh, I'm feeling anxious. Or are you? Or are you just being human and you, you know, you're thinking things through, you're thinking logic about stuff. Mm. You're worried about things that you probably should worry about and you don't when you you shouldn't. It's the society nowadays is, like you said, it's a quick finger and it's like, yep, yeah, you've got that. Take this. And you yeah. strip well, it back. Yeah. Well, they're saying, aren't they, that in the UK, there's going to be <clears throat> 10 million more people that are going to need extra help and support for mental health due to the coronavirus pandemic. So yeah. that's a, a hell of a lot more prescriptions written. And they're for... saying about little kids as well, aren't they? They're saying about... Like, yeah. So it's six year olds and above, like from that age, and you're thinking, when I was six, I'd be distracted at a, 
a bird flying past the window, then I'll be distracted by <laughs> noise in the street. Like, I'm not focusing on yeah. the pandemic, but I do hear kids. So when I drop my little boy off, I, sometimes I hear the kids, like they're talking and they're talking about coronavirus. Right. My son's four, Mike. So when I drop him off at preschool, I'm listening to four-year-olds, three-year-olds talk about stay back. You've got to remain two meters. And are you in this bubble? And I'm thinking, no, no, no. You should be talking about building a den or, you know, fighting each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> playing the dragon today. It should be that kind of conversation. But the whole world has shifted. Yeah. And the focus is on coronavirus. It's about the pandemic. And then uh, mindset again. Yeah. Mindset. I just quickly add, um, you get no sympathy here, Mike, from uh, the six months of winter. Because in the north of England, we get 11 months and two weeks of winter. <laughs> that's, that's brutal. Yeah. You had sunshine yesterday, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Do you know what I did? Yeah. Summer. You're done. So we've got we've got an Indian summer going on here. So we've got three or four days of sun. Monday, Tuesday, we've got snow. <laughs> I, I gotta say, you know, there is an element. Different people are designed differently, but you know what? I probably had seasonal depression disorder, to be honest with you, because the lack of vitamin D, the lack of sun yeah. can also screw with people. Mm -hmm. I, I, I on a positive note, I can give three little things that kind of help me and maybe help others. Yeah. Uh, the, the first one would be walking, you know, especially walking outdoors. I mean, I, I, I've never really been a guy who likes to walk on a treadmill, but I think walking outdoors, even if it's cold, uh, but you know, that's very helpful for mental health. Yeah. The second thing, uh, kombucha, you know, I think one thing we don't talk about is, that these probiotics and probably prebiotics as well are so important to your system. And kombucha is a drink that is loaded with these probiotics. Now the downside is some of these kombucha companies also have a lot of sugar to make the kombucha taste better, but you can also get probiotics and yogurt, but just watch the sugar intake. But, but the idea is that your gut has a lot of uh, things going on there that control your mood. Most people think about mood, emotions as their brain or circumstance, but the, the gut, what you're eating and, and the balance of prebiotics, probiotics, that's very important too. I've, I've had good luck with kombucha and also there's probiotic pills. The third thing that works for me, which may not work for everyone, especially at this time, is I like going to movies in the movie theater. I'm in a state of Florida where we've actually had the movie theaters open for months and I go a lot. And I know that that's not available to everybody right now. I get that. But under normal circumstances, that helps me. Yeah. No, this is good. I think, um, again, alluding back to previous stuff, when I, I was going through a bit of a phase of that sort of mental health, and what worked for me was putting my headphones in and I would go for a run or a walk, but it'd be miles. And sometimes you wouldn't even realise how far I've gone until I check my watch or my, my phone. I'm like, and I've got to go back. <laughs> like, yeah. I've got to turn around at some point. But it is that you, you get to switch off from the world. You get to switch off a bit from reality. Be in your own little your mind. You fight your own battles. But when you've got a good playlist on or a podcast, um, anything like that, it it takes you away and you can just relax. And that, that's what worked for me personally. So I'm on that. I've heard about this kabucha stuff as well. It's the second, uh, third time I've heard about that in this this week. It's, it's available. Yeah, I like it in drink form. Uh, well, kombucha is a drink. 
And so it's, I just said, like, watch the sugar because some of the companies put a lot of sugar in their kombucha drinks, but it's good. It really helps balance your system. Yeah, I'm um, <clears throat> the same with you, AD, cycling. I just love getting out and having an hour, two hours to myself where I'm just in my own head, not being a dad, not working, not being a husband, just doing you. Doing you. It's important. You've got to have that... You've got to have that switch off. And if one thing we have learned through that, through all this so far, is it's having that balance, having that switch off, that time for you, the me time, because you can get so consumed with everything, being a parent, being a husband, being a partner, being anything. Then all of a sudden you sit back, you know, you've had a long day. Where do you get your switch off? You don't. You go to bed, you're worried about how much work you've done or how your child's doing because obviously everyone comparing and then all of a sudden you go, actually you wake up, you feel rotten and it just repeats. Yeah. Again, we keep alluding back to that mental health state that you take yourself out of that situation. It's only you that can go, okay, enough's enough. That's it. I need an hour. I need 20 minutes, whatever works. You've got to do it. You've got to get out. Mike, coming off the meds, did you notice a difference in, I, I, forget your own self, but like in your work professionally, was there a difference with what you were putting out on and off the meds? Did it help or, or, or did you notice any difference at all? Here's the funny thing. You know what the difference I did notice was the lack of difference. And, and what I mean by that is I was waiting for like some huge epiphany, like, Oh my God, I never would have thought of this when I was on the meds or, mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. I feel so differently about this topic off the meds than on the meds. The most, that's the best way I can describe it. The weirdest thing was getting off the meds after that initial just, you know, turbulence of the first couple of weeks going cold turkey was waiting for something to happen that never did, you know, good or bad, you know, w waiting for some type of problem yeah. that never occurred or, or waiting for some type of incident or epiphany or, hey, you know, just it, it's weird that that's kind of my feedback. It's, it's like the weirdest part was not having a weird part. Yeah, <laughs> and that's right because that obviously plays on your mind as well because, you, like you say, you're waiting. You're going, yeah. okay, today's going to be the day I'm going to either blow up or something drastic, and it passes. Yeah. And then passes. And, again, yeah, that's, that's interesting to hear because I think a lot of people can sort of resonate with that. But you are waiting for so long. But it also makes, to your point, Mike, is did I need it in the first place? If it's made no material difference to my mood, did I, did I need it? Well, here's here's and you're right, and here's where where a lot of the anger comes in that I don't I don't know if I'll ever have resolved. To be honest with you, which is I don't think that during those many years I was on these various medications. I don't know if I was living, you know, what people say now, which I, I don't, this term is kind of lame, but living my best life or living to my full potential or enjoying myself, however you want to put it, was I fully activated? Probably not. Because I, I think what people don't realize is there is a lot of energy put into seeing your doctor, taking the meds every night, blah, 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 dealing with side effects of weight gain or whatever it is. And I think what, what you, what you can't do, you'll never have enough. You, you have time to make more money, but you never have enough money to make more time. 
So these years that I spent on these medications, I can never get back. So some of those were what would have been my prime years of life, physically, mentally, whatever. And so having a residual anger that those years are now gone and um, they were gone, you know, into that system, not to say that I haven't had interesting life experiences, even while on medication. I mean, while, while I was on meds, I, I worked with Wesley Snipes in a film, you know, hard luck. I, I, I got into a, a movie with Wesley Snipes. I had a scene with Meryl Streep and Elizabeth Shue in uh, Hope Springs. I made MikeMessier.com, you know, of, of the 41 awards I've won in, you know, film and television, uh, probably two thirds of those were while I was on medications. Some of my most interesting work you know, the Wrestling with Sanity short film trilogy, The Nature of the Flame, all these things on the Mike Messier YouTube channel. Um, and my book I actually left in the other room. So I'll grab it real quick at some point. But <laughs> the point is, a lot of these things were accomplished while I was on medication. Now, what has kind of been missing is the enjoyment, like the enjoyment of these experiences. I've been living in these experiences and appreciative of them. Have I really been enjoying them? I don't know. Because I think that the medication or being on these meds is always like some type of underlying subtext of unhappiness. And people who have never been through this situation probably won't understand it. It, it makes little to no sense to them. It's foreign to them. But to people that have been through this situation, they probably know what I'm talking about. There's a residual maybe guilt or, or embarrassment or frustration or feeling limited, like no matter what I do, no matter what I accomplish, what I do, if I'm taking these meds every night or every morning or both, that I'm somehow uh, limited because this is an anchor around my ankle. And um, there you go. So it is what it is. But I think the problem for me is, um, like I said, our country, the USA at least, is just getting to the point of uh, accepting that some people may need to take medication. We're not even ready for the conversation that the three of us are having right now, which <laughs> is to analyze, um, do all these people need these medications? And who's playing judge and jury here? And is there perhaps another conversation is, is there ever a time when someone's ready to get off the medication? Like that, that's a conversation, you know, my dad, I know it's the, the dad, uh, you know, in beers podcast here, but my dad actually raised that topic to me once in passing, but I remembered, which was, well, maybe these meds are something you're on for a while, but eventually you can get off of them. Well, I don't know how much he knew or how much he didn't, but he said that probably a good eight or nine years before I got off of them. And, uh, it's just interesting to me that these topics are so taboo. Once we've put someone in the patient category of you're, you're this patient and you're taking this med and, and take them next month and take them next month and the month after that. And after you die, we'll put them into your ashes. You know, we never allow for the idea of someone getting off of these things. No, no. And that's like, like I sort of mentioned before, it's more, it's, there's not there's no interest in the cure or the the prevention of any of these mental health it's just prescribe take these tablets off you go on to the next one and it's almost easier for the medical professionals and i, I get 
they're overwhelmed, they're underfunded, you know, but there still has to be some sort of professional. You, you think know, when you, you'd have like a, a plan? Okay, we're yeah. going to put you on these and then here's a, here's a milestone, a goal. Once we hit here, we'll review it, we'll check this, we'll do this test, we'll have a conversation. But there's none of that. Like you said, it's prescribe, see you later, yeah. bring in the next one. But what's worrying though is that, <clears throat> so I was, at, I was at football training the other night and one of the lads was talking about his younger sister and he was saying that she's just been prescribed some anxiety pills, right? And his words, bearing in mind it's his own sister, was she's only gone on them because her best mate's on them. Right. So all of a sudden it's, it's almost like a, a new, you know, fen, a trend, trend ad. Like, oh, yeah, I can say I'm on these pills and, oh, yeah, I've got anxiety, I've got this. People who really do suffer, you know, it almost takes away that spotlight, that, that voice for them because they're seeing that, oh, okay, everyone's got it now. Like, right. I'm, no spe- I'm not special. I'm not going to get seen to because all they're doing is throwing it out there. It's, it's, worry- it's worrying. It's worrying. <clears throat> so, Mike, look, I'd love to, love to hear about some of the things that you're working on and some of the things you've done in the past, um, taking it away from, I guess, the, the, the less interesting subject of mental health and more in, into the interesting topic of what you've been doing and what you've been up to professionally well, i think thank you i appreciate that and this is a fun podcast um and an important one too what i would probably refer most people to on youtube is uh disregard the vampire a mike messier documentary it's uh 39 minutes and 58 seconds long so if you put anything mike messier disregard the vampire the first word is uh disregard d-i-s-r-e-g-a-r-d the vampire a Mike Messier documentary. It's uh, won 11 awards. Um, just recently won a Havelock International Film Festival short documentary award, the Skip or the Shauna Shea uh, Film Festival Award for Best Doc. Basically, the idea of the documentary is uh, I was setting out to make a vampire narrative. The lead actor dropped out of the piece after we already started filming, and we had to get a new guy. We had to get a new vampire uh, character, you know, someone to do this. And we continued with the shoot, but unfortunately we kind of hit the wall with uh, time, you know, and that's all explained to the doc. So what happened was as we're still filming this narrative footage, I kind of realized as the director, the real story here is the fact that these people are still coming out for this thing, meaning the cast and the crew, you know, beyond myself, like people, even though the, the writing on the wall was kind of apparent that we're not going to finish this movie, uh, the fact that people were still dedicated enough to come and help make scenes happen led me to document the story of this as kind of a life lesson for would-be filmmakers or people that do make films already or anybody. You know, because I think a lot of people can relate to the situation of maybe you had a business, a small business, a gym or a bakery that you wanted to put together and the circumstances fell apart. And what did you learn from that? Or maybe you had a marriage or a relationship and it fell apart. What did you learn from it? So I think in this documentary, why it connects with so many people is uh, it's a story about success, struggle, failure, and, and the success of failure, if that makes any sense. That piece, uh, like I said, it's won 11 awards. People can find it, 39 minutes and 58 seconds on YouTube. Um, I've also 
and I'm going to walk over and get the book version because I left it in the other room, guys. So I'm going to get it real quick. All right. The the other idea is that I rewrote this narrative of the original piece into a narrative novel, uh, disregard uh, distance from Avalon, when the dying and the dead reunite. So what I did was the story of the characters from Disregard the Vampire, I kind of took control over again, and I re-envisioned it. And uh, the title is now A Distance from Avalon, When the Dying and the Dead Reunite by Mike Messier. The cover art's by my buddy, Nazar Germanoff, who's also a filmmaker. And uh, the book is on Amazon, and it's available on Kindle, I think for just $2.99. And the, um, the hard copy, there's me, there's the uh, author's picture. But the, the basic idea is this is a book that people can read in two, under, two hours or less, but it's loaded with um, thoughts. It's loaded with philosophy. It's not just a come-to-suck-your-blood vampire book. As people can see by the cover, um, there's some real care into this as a piece of art. And hopefully I'm going to write a couple of sequels to this. So this book, I feel, is my artistic statement that I'd love for people to enjoy. And uh, it's not a huge investment. Like I said, it's $7.77 on Amazon for paperback or the Kindle is $2.99. But this is what I've been working on. You know, during this time of pandemic, I have done more writing. I've rewritten a bunch of screenplays. I had a, a screenplay called Also Ran, which is a, a, a fictional story about a guy who goes into prison. Why does he go into prison? What does he do when he's there? And what does he do when he gets out? I rewrote that script. I rewrote uh, American Luchador, The Dream of Lobo Fuego, which is my uh, La Lucha Libre screenplay. I rewrote that. I'd love to get that going as a graphic novel or a feature film. Uh, I've worked with my friend Arthur Hugh on The First Betrayal, which is uh, kind of a, a Greek, Egyptian, Greek, uh, New England uh, crime story. It's pretty fascinating. My buddy uh, down here, Aaron Woodson, and, and I in Florida worked on Aaliyah and Troy which is an African-American uh, Jacksonville, Florida-based uh, romance between a um, um, military man suffering from PTSD and a single mom who's got uh, baby daddy issues. And so I've, I've been working on a lot of stuff. I've been doing a lot of podcasts uh, myself, uh, Michael McGlone, the Geico man, um, the guy that does the Geico commercials. He was in the film The Brothers McMullen. He's been on the Mike Messier podcast. Barry Primus, who's my own acting coach and teacher. I've been pretty active even during this crazy times. A lot of a lot of podcasts and a lot of writing. That's really good. Really good that you've you've taken that approach. Whereas I know a lot of people have gone the, the other way through this and they've, they've they've done nothing. But no, that's amazing. You've done so much. Well, thank I'm you. I'm starting to question myself now, Mike. <laughs> well, here, here's the thing. I mean, I, I guess for me, guys, you know, the thing that I'm probably – I probably like acting the most, like I enjoy acting the most, but probably what I'm best at is writing. And if there's ever a thing where even good writers have to just sit down and write, that's like the hardest thing about writing is actually just sitting there and writing. Mm. <clears throat> but that, that's one thing that this time has allowed me. I also run a film festival, the Avalonia Film Festival. We still had our live event in November of 2020 in Ormond Beach at the Frame of Mind Art Gallery so in, in, or in Florida. So people can look that up, avalonia.festival.com. The word Avalonia, of course, comes from 
the same theme, the Avalon. And in case you're wondering what Avalon is, uh, Avalonia is a continent of land that drifted off New England, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, kind of like an Atlantis type of thing. Like there was actually a, a land called Avalonia that drifted off into to the depths of the ocean. So what I'm trying to do with this a distance from Avalon, that's a recurring theme of it, is the mystical and mythical land that is Avalon or Avalonia. It's um I love I love things like that, you know, things like um like the Atlantis story and stories like I, I love all that sort of stuff. I'm the kind of guy that when I hear something like that, I'll I'll then go and spend the next two, three hours doing the research on it and finding out all and then I end up on a in a YouTube um wormhole just getting all the information. That's that's, that's typically how I am. Yeah, I'll do the same. I'll do the same. I appreciate it because, because what it is, is, you know, and I'll say this, you know, we talk about companies like Amazon and, and there, you know, look, there's always controversy, but with big companies, you know, because how do these big companies spend their money or how do they spend our money? But I'll say this three years ago, when I was writing the majority of this book, I was writing it at a coffee house Java Madness in, in, in uh, Narragansett, Rhode Island, that I was writing this, this novel version. I've written it as a stage play, a screenplay, and a novel. And um, I didn't know how to get it published. And there's all these companies, as a little warning for people, for writers, there's all these companies that are going to publish your book and, and market your book, but they want to charge the writer up front, right? So the writer who's already spent the time writing this book now has to spend $3,000 or $5,000 or, you know, to get their own work out there with the hope or the promise that someone's going to get them their money back. Mm -hmm. Well, through a company like Amazon, you know, as big brother as it is, you're able to self-publish and not take that financial risk. Like I didn't pay anybody to publish my book. I taught myself how to publish it. So in a sense, companies like that, that have a platform where, Typically, a consumer like myself can become the producer. I think yeah. that's pretty empowering. So there is an upside to some of these bigger companies that that we, you know, sometimes fear or dislike. Yeah, because the 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 narrative of the companies, the big super businesses like Amazon and the supermarkets, the big supermarkets, that they put the small person out of business. But in this scenario, they're allowing the small the small man to to work and promote. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there's a certain, um, how do you say it, credibility that comes with having your book on Amazon. Yeah. Like, like people know it. They know that there's an actual book there. They know that if they order it, they're going to get a copy just like this in paperback or the Kindle version. So there's a trust that uh, is great because say I were just to have a website and say, hey, send me the money and I'll send you the book. Okay. Maybe you don't trust a guy that you don't know, but with with a uh, an a Amazon type company, it's good. Um, so I'll just I'll put that out there. But thanks for ordering the book. I think people will enjoy it. I think what I've gotten the feedback from is that it's a gothic horror, but it's not so deep into horror that people that don't like horror won't enjoy it. And that um, it's just a, a different type of read. You know what I mean? It's it's a different, it's a quick read. It's about a two hour read. And uh, the cover art by Nazar, I think, is killer. That's what sold it for me. It was the quick read. Yeah. <laughs> I can look intelligent for a very short period of time. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. How long, how long does it take you to write something like that, Mike? 
Well, the funny thing was um, I started writing the original story Disregard in 2013 after a friend of mine, believe it or not, was involved in a cult. So the idea was cults. Like that was just kind of the starting point, cults. What does it take to bring someone into a cult? Then I was actually inspired by a, a film called, I believe it's called Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, which is about the Natalie Wood, Diane Cannon, and it's about uh, sex partner swapping in the 1960s. And then the idea was, what if the cult used partner swapping as the uh, bait, as the lure? And then it was, what if the cult were, were vampires or something like vampires? Maybe not vampire, but something vampire-esque. And that's what led me to Jean Lacroix Distance, who's kind of the the, the vampire esque character. Uh, Joe Humble, who's who's our uh, leading guy, who's a school teacher, who would love to be a, a TED speaker, like a, a philosophical master, but he's kind of going through a divorce and all these things. His date Shadow, and uh, Jean Lacroix Distance's Muse uh, Heartbreak. So there's some pretty. There's only four main characters in this story, but I think people will find that they relate to one or more of the characters uh, fairly well, fairly often. Well, I'll tell you what, well, me, me and Adi will read it and then we'll do a review on here. Yeah, please. That'll be awesome. That'll be great. Mine, so mine will be here Tuesday. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I appreciate it. That's I'm, all, I'm, I'm all about Kindle, so I'll, uh, I'll get it on the Kindle. Either way, uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm glad to look like, oh, yeah, you can read properly. <laughs> but no, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have a read of that. Um, yeah, definitely. And what's interesting is that we've, they say you have that back in, you have that platform, but we're speaking to you now. So to read this book, there's already that, that sort of connection. There's yeah. that, that background and to own the book now or the Kindle, you can go, well, actually, yeah, we spoke to this guy. Like we know more about this. So no, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been fun. I'd be happy to come on again anytime guys to go deeper into any of these topics or anything you want. Sure. Well, look, it's, Mike, it's been brilliant speaking to you. Thanks for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll let you know what we think. Yeah, good luck with everything, Mike. <laughs> Thank good you luck. very much. And thanks to the Matchmaker FM uh, podcast. Yeah, and, yeah. And your wife's got nothing to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, right. That's it. Cheers, Mike. Thanks. Cheers. Thank thanks, you. Thanks,